I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know? They're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the helm have lied to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right. it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to vote it in. And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. What a wild time, guys. We're going to go back tonight in time. But first... I gotta, I gotta say a little thank you uh, to some members of our community who, uh, and I hate the term community. They're they're friends of mine, fellow podcasters, who, uh, you know, I got messed up a couple weeks ago helping my landlord out was lift, lifting a wishing well and popped my bicep. You know, I had three pops; it was pretty bad. And a couple of you guys reached out and uh, offered some advice and sent some care packages and uh i can't thank you enough uh, i'm doing a little bit better now uh we're getting there slowly but surely uh and, but it's just been one of those one thing after another you know it was i popped my elbow or my bicep helping my landlord lift his wishing well because my well water was coming out brown and i'm like oh here we go and so i've been battling that issue and working around that and all sorts of fun stuff. It's just the the daily grind. But with all that chaos going on, I did find some time to research. And this has been something I've been looking into for quite a while. But L, thank you so much, hon. I really appreciate it. Guys, go check out um, the One Thumb, uh, One Thumb L and her podcast, Speed Bump, over there. Uh, she does such a great job and it is such an absolute sweetheart. So please do anything you can to go over and support her. Uh, and her great work. And she is just an absolutely kind-hearted soul who I cannot thank enough right now. There, I, I wish there were more people like her and we wouldn't be in the situation we're in right now. But with that said, guys, some other things going on right now. Other people are doing some great work. I just heard a awesome interview with Jason Brashears. And if you guys aren't it, it, uh, up to date with him. He does archaics, um, a really 
really interesting guy uh appears to be really like thoroughly researched i mean he's he's got a hell of a story uh great youtube channel uh tons of videos and he's up to he said 335 now but he just did a podcast on the higher side chats and guys i highly recommend go go listening to that um not only for for his kind of view of things and and some of his takes on what he sees happening and uh his views but he also has some things to to help us to stay out of the matrix so to speak and uh and what he said it really hit home because he said you have to have in order to stay out of the the matrix you know stay out of that npc kind of life you need imagination you need intuition right i mean it, it's just it's and it, it's true though it, without those things um and he had one more what was the third one uh, i'm drawing a total blank right now i'm totally messing it up it was intuition imagination and empathy right and the empathy thing i get right we have to feel for other people right and especially in this time we're in right now because there's a lot of hate going around a lot of division being spread and you know based on my last episode there's even division being spread in our community right because the further they divide us folks the the harder it is for us to assemble to us, for us to gather, to put our energy collectively together, and that's a battle we're gonna have to we're gonna have to keep fighting. And I'm willing willing to put my my work in to try and do my part of it. And part of my my thing is exposing the lies of the past and and showing you some of the history that might not be lies, but just fantastical stuff that's happened in the past that we don't really it's kind of blown over in history and and blown over in our education system or indoctrination system as it should be known but okay so do your research okay <laughs> trust no one and and put your time in because i, I laughed because i put a little 1 minute clip up there today on on my instagram page and i had someone you know, respond to me and say, oh, this is just, you know, what, what are you just uh, trying to get clicks and, or, or drive up your ego? And I was like, no, I'm like, I want people to, to take this clip and go research it more. I'm not going to just hand people the information. I'm, am I wrong here? Am I wrong to ask or expect people to go beyond Instagram? And look into this stuff. Go beyond a 60 second clip. Or maybe a 90 second clip. Whatever it is that, that, that it got shrunken down from. Go do some research people. We're, we're two ways. We want everything handed to us now. And that's why we're, we are where we are. Because we fell for it. We got lazy. We don't want to do the work. We don't want to put in the time. The effort. The energy. But we want the results. We want to know. Well, that's not how it works. You have to put in the time. You have to do the work. You have to research. You have to go to multiple sources as close to the source as possible. And then you'll have a better understanding of the picture. And that's 
that kind of leads me into what we're doing tonight. And we're going to get into the great fires of 1871. Most people just know the Chicago fire of 1871. And honestly, out of the, the fires, that was one of the smaller ones out of the bunch. So what we're going to look at is on, what is it? It's uh, on October 7th. Right, 1871 in Chicago, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Ontario. Fire simultaneously erupts around 9.30 at night. Now we know, and I've talked about this before, about the whole Chicago fire, the, the idea that this was started by um, you know, a cow tipping over a candle and starting this whole thing. Some people even say it's dry weather, right? Poor logging practices were to blame. They didn't deforest properly. Uh, some say that it started because of uh, railroad waste management. They they were burning stuff and it got out of control, especially in, in Peshtigo. Uh, and some say it was just wind. But then others... And this is where I find it interesting, believe it might be tied to a meteorite or a comet. And that's what caused these amazing destructive flames. Because guys, we're not talking about normal fire here. We're talking about stone buildings that were reduced to ash. Okay, one large house, like it was reported, burst into flames and then shot up in the air like, I don't know, 80, 85 feet. We're, we're talking about crazy things. So you have, you know, large numbers of victims, dead, dead bodies, no burns, no injuries. They just suffocated because the air had no oxygen in it. And then you have other tales where bodies are completely incinerated. And then 10 feet away, people aren't even touched. It's just such a wild, wild scenario. So um, basically what I'm going to do is this is going to be a multi episodes because I'm not going to go, you know, for five hours straight. Um, conspiracy guy style. Uh, I don't have it in me. Uh, what I'd rather do is I'm going to break this up. So we're tonight we're going to look at uh, some of the Chicago fire and and some other fires that are similar to this, and then uh, I plan to dig in deeper into the Chicago fire next episode as well, and then the Peshtigo and uh, Lake Michigan side of the fire we'll talk about in another episode too, uh, because I have a couple different sources, guys. I have uh, a, a book here called American Apocalypse that I got by uh, Ross Miller. And that has some good information in it. I have another book called Chicago and the Great Conflagration uh, from 1872 by Elias Colbert and Everett Chamberlain that I want to go through. And that has a lot of firsthand accounts and things like that in it. Um, and then I have uh, a firsthand account from the Peshtigo fire from Reverend, Reverend Peter Pennant who uh, 
had an article that was published where he went through the different things that he saw that he heard about and 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 his description guys what what we're going to get into here is the description of the fire it leaves you wondering this isn't normal this doesn't seem natural it seems something almost supernatural some have even even theorized it may have been weapon you know weaponized fire and and if we think about it though Think back to what we talked about before in other episodes. We talked about Greek fire being used in the Civil War. Okay, now some would say that maybe possibly, you know, all oh, people were flying overhead and opened up with this, these giant fire balloons. Because that's a term you're going to hear when we go through this. Fire balloons. Have you ever heard of fire balloons before? I hadn't. We're going to look at a couple different comets and meteors that could possibly be responsible for this. Um, And then we're going to look at some other fires. Okay, now we mentioned these fires that went across Chicago, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ontario simultaneously on the night of October the 7th, 1871. On October 7th, 1825... The Miramichi fires broke out where 1.6 million hectares were destroyed. Just a coincidence? Does it show that there is a cyclical pattern to things? Because one of the things we'll see when we get into the comet later is the comets have these patterns where they reappear. Every, you know, the one that that may be tied to this was reappearing every six years and nine months. And then it would disappear. And so there's so many different things. But I want to give you not only a description of the fire itself from people. I want to give you some firsthand accounts from the people in the fire and what was going on and, and the mayhem that it must have been. And then I also want to look at the destruction because that's also unheard of. I mean, we're talking about devastation that is really not something that we are are really used to. I mean, look at the vast range here. For those of you watching, um, I have a map up here and it's basically Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Erie area. And if you look at northern Wisconsin, it's just fires all along both sides of Green Bay. You go down the coast, you look at Chicago, there's the fire there. You come around to the Michigan side, just south of Grand Rapids, there's fire there. Just east of Green Bay on the Michigan side, you have a fire there that that goes in almost a diagonal line towards Canada. You look out on the eastern side of Michigan, and there's fires everywhere out near Detroit, Ann Arbor. And this goes all the way up into Ontario. And let me show you here. We have another one. Let's see. I have another 
picture of this right here I wanted to show you. And that's the same one. This is the one I wanted to get into because this shows you also, it's the same thing. Look at this pattern here. So we look at the fires that we're dealing with here and we have Chicago, 17,500 buildings destroyed, 250 to 300 killed. Now that's, I mean, we're talking here, let's add it up, okay? And then we're going to go to Peshtigo, 1,500 to 2,500 killed, 1.2 million acres burned. We go over to Great Michigan fires, 200 to 1,000 killed with 2.5 million acres burned. So we're looking at massive numbers of acres burned, over four around 4 million acres burned in total. And this isn't even the largest fire of all time, which is shocking. But when we start looking at the Chicago fire, you hear about the vastness of it, right? Well, look at Michigan, 2.5 million acres burned all over the state, almost around the perimeter. The center is really the only place that was spared. And then you get in over to Wisconsin and, and, and the Peshtigo area and all around Green Bay is just a blaze, both sides of it. And they said, you know, I, I think we have an account here where they'll talk about the fire jumped across Green Bay. I mean, there's crazy accounts, guys, of, of fires doing things that I can't even think about. So let's take a look here at the uh, American Apocalypse book. And what they say here, fire is sudden. It can originate at anywhere, originate anywhere. No one is ever surprised when fire breaks out here, there, or somewhere. It is always expected. It is very, it, its very suddenness is impressive. And people invariably search for a cause. The fact that often none can be found adds an awe inherent in the idea of fire. It has a mysterious ubiquity. It can appear anywhere and at any time. And that's what we see when we get into these firsthand accounts. You'll, you'll hear these poor people that out of nowhere, their house is surrounded and engulfed in flames. Or at, in a good scenario, three sides of their house is surrounded and engulfed. And they're at least given an area to exit. So it goes on to say, fire spreads. It is contagious uh, and insatiable. The violence with which it seizes whole forests and steppes and cities is one of the most impressive things about it. Until its onset, uh, tree stood by tree and house by house, each distinct and separate from the next. But fire joins what was separate and in the shortest time possible. Isolated and diverse objects all go up in the same flames. They become so much the same that they disappear completely. Houses, trees, creatures. The fire seizes them all. And that was a powerful. That really hit home when I, I started reading about that. And I'm like, wow, that really, you know, puts things into perspective. So you want to know how hot these fires got. And we'll get into this later. I just want to kind of give you a quick overview. It said, Chicago's sluggish river seemed to boil. The wind blowing a stiff gale has possession of the flames and the beautiful buildings. Chicago's glory lay before them. And with inc incredibly short space of time, 
nearly a mile of brick blocks was consumed as if by magic. Okay, we're talking about brick buildings just consumed by the fire. Turned essentially to ash. And that's what's what's really, really crazy about this is that, you know, this can happen just like that. So what are we going to share here? We're going to share our... Okay. Nope. I'm going to share this. Okay. So what we have here is a map of Chicago. Let's see if we can. All right. We're going to bring this back up. Okay. Here is the map of Chicago. So now if you look at this, right, when we talk about this great fire, look at the small isolated area of the city where it strikes. Now, just to give you perspective, it's in the northern part of the uh, city, and down south is actually where the World Fair was, or where fair would come to be. So this fire is very isolated, and this reminds me of when we look at uh, what Casey and I looked at with the San Francisco fires, how it's isolated to this certain area. Now, when you look at the Peshtigo and, and the Michigan fires, they're all over the place. I mean, we're just talking insane fires. And we'll get into some descriptions in later, later episodes. But the Chicago one, if, if you look at it, it's really, you know, not that much of the city that was impacted. Yeah, we've got almost 18,000 buildings. You know, you had a couple hundred people killed, but that was minor compared to what happened everywhere else. But this is given all the attention. Again, look at this map. So you're looking at Chicago, just this little piece up here. I mean, not little, little, but compared to the city. I mean, it's not even a quarter, of th you know, a fifth of the city is impacted by this. So, yeah, and here is a better picture of the burning district. Okay, and you'll see the river here, and it did go on both sides of the river, and, and Lake Michigan's out over here on the bottom on the, on, of this map. And again, we're looking at a very isolated area. Now, the conspiracy theorist in me looks at this area and thinks, wow, that's some high-end real estate right there, right on Lake Michigan. 1870s, you know, and supposedly after reading over and over in this, they, they talk about the poor construction of the original city. That's something they made known over and over and over again, was that there was this shoddy construction that they needed to, to rebuild. Well, what better way to do it than fire? I mean, it's kind of their MO. We've seen it throughout the 1800s. There's just these great, great fires, entire cities, not entire cities burning, but we're told of entire cities burning or large areas of cities burning. Well, when this stuff happens, and we'll see this, we'll get into this here in a minute, 
Who benefits? It's usually not the residents. So uh, here's an interesting take. Uh, Chicago evangelist David Swing wrote, when we awoke, we were in a new world. The tens of thousands of sleepers sunk away in weariness and grief. But when they awoke, they saw around them a nation full of kindness in a great circle of states and empires, all colored deeply by an undreamed of civilization. That's what they wanted you to think after the fire. New world. Interesting. And that's something we'll see over and over again. The theme of Chicago World Fair was the Columbian Exposition. Christopher Columbus discovered the new world. And we'll see this talk over and over again. So it says here to describe the fire, that towering wall of whirling, seething, roaring flame, which swept on and on, devouring the most stately and massive stone buildings as though they had been the cardboard playthings of a child. So you think about that, right? We're talking about stone buildings that are just like godzilla by the fire, just destroyed, consumed. And we'll see this over and over. And I mean, in, in this book, they go into, actually, I do want to read that one. I want to, I want to give you a, um, a description of what happened to like the Tribune building. Okay. So we go here. When the, when the facade of the courthouse liquefied or flaked, the bell in the great cupola let go and went crashing through the building's core. The skin of the building continued to blister and run as inside imploded. Only the freestanding walls survived in eerie self-parody. The architectural rubble in the basement uh, fell into the basement and joined the city's accumulated records, which had been rendered into a fine gray ash by the intense heat. Land records held in presumed safety in the now destroyed courthouse vaults were burned beyond recovery. The destruction of land records put into question the ownership of even the ruins around which the stunned population moved. So you have it right there. It got so hot, it it first of all liquefied and flaked the building, but then it was hot enough to melt the vault. Think about that. That is some intense flames. So now let's go to the Tribune building. Uh, we have here. It says, politicians who prided themselves on how much tax money they could save by keeping city services at a minimum were at a loss to rationalize the devastation of the city's main architecture. Quality or type of materials, expense, or style appeared to have no effect on whether or not a building had survived. The Tribune building was typical of the city's most durable building type. According to the temp uh, contemporary account, the Tribune was, by several hours, the last building in Chicago to survive the general destruction, and its magnificent fireproof building was the last to succumb, although it had been surrounded by fire on two sides for about four hours. The ceilings were of corrugated iron 
resting upon the wrought iron I-beams, while every partition wall in the entire structure of brick, it was, in all aspects, one of the most absolutely fireproof buildings ever erected. That is, it was fireproof up until the date of its destruction. Amazing. That's just, think about how hot that has to be. Okay, and if you look on this map right here, you'll see on the left side, this is where the courthouse was. And it's smack dab in the middle of the fire uh, on this side. And, you know, it spared Lincoln Park somehow. I don't know how that didn't get burnt. Now, here's what I want to think about when we start talking about this. Look at the area again. And who's going to benefit? Right? What happened right there? All of the records were destroyed. We're talking birth certificates. We're talking any sort of documentation the town may have on people. Land records. Land rights. So who's to say you couldn't just go in and claim that it was yours and who's to say the powers that be didn't just go in and make these claims because in a lot of instances they did all right and we're going to take a look right here i'm going to just show you some pictures of the devastation in chicago look at these brick buildings reduced to rubble i just can't imagine how hot it would be and the amount of fire that would be needed to make destruction like this. And it's very subjective too, because there's times where one building is destroyed and the building next to it's fine. It just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, look here, these churches were gutted. Church of the Holy Name, St. James Church, just gutted. Makes you think. What do we know about churches, cathedrals? Just having them destroyed, man. They they were had multiple purposes. But that's not to say they didn't rebuild. And we'll get into that later too, because they rebuilt at a you know infinite infinitely quick rate too. And and they were just throwing structures up after the fire. So let's go now and we will take a look at a first-hand account of the fires. So we're going to start here. This, this is a great book. Now, I preface this by saying, let's go back to the words. And when whenever we look at things... We always want to look at the words. And my buddy Randy over at the Red Thread podcast has been doing some great work over there. So I recommend all you guys go over there and check out his work. Because what he's doing over there is he is taking a look at the different aspects of our history that might have been manipulated. 
And what's interesting is you look at a lot of these massive, these great fires, so to speak, in the 1800s, and a lot of them are called conflagrations. Now, I wasn't aware of what a conflagration was until I got into this research. So we'll look at that. The definition by Merriam-Webster, one, is a fire, especially a large disastrous fire. Makes sense. Okay, that would... But two is a conflict or a war. So we look at that, some synonyms for conflagration are fire, holocaust, and inferno. And these are all points that that Randy brought up too. It just makes you think, guys. I'm not saying there's anything there, but again, the word magic. We look at things like star forts. Why would they also be called batteries? It's it's these guys are magicians. And they're sneaky. And we have to pay attention to what's going on. So now we are going to look at this book, Chicago and the Great Conflagration. And this is from 1872. I said it's from Elias Colbert and Everett, uh, Everett Chamberlain. And I will post this on my Patreon page uh, after this show and it will be out there along with i will eventually post the uh river peter pennon document also from the pestigo fire and uh, we'll put some pictures out there so guys if you want to want to check out it's a great great plug right here patreon.com great deception podcast go check it out um we put a lot of videos out there too so let's get back to this book now this book is amazing I mean, it's from 1872. It goes, it it starts, it's it's more about the history of Chicago. Okay. And so it talks about the the building of Chicago after the Civil War, um, how Chicago built a lake tunnel, supposedly. That may be a whole nother episode in itself. Uh, I got uh, a friend of mine, well, a friend, uh, a friend of the show reached out to me and uh, has some great information on tunnels. So, we may dig into tunnels here in a little bit because I was not aware that there is a lake tunnel under Lake Michigan that was dug in the 1800s. Very interesting. But what we're going to look at right here is a chapter called The Science of the Fire. And this basically describes and is going to give us descriptions of the fire. And when we look at this, it's so amazing because... The descriptions are like things I've never heard of. And it just makes you really think about how, what could have caused this. Let's get into it. The fires raged in the lumber districts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, in the woods of New York State, and in many other cities of the Union, from the Atlantic seaboard to San Francisco. Right? And that was all over 1871. The, uh, but the lowest estimate we can make please the amount of timbered land actually burned over at not less than 480,000 acres, of which 200,000 are Michigan. This is equal to 750 square miles of territory. 1.8 billion feet of lumber for market. 
or nearly as much as Chicago has received in the past two years. That's that's significant, guys. Significant. Okay, so what happened was they said there was uh they left behind vast quantities of combustible material and many hundreds of farms, some of them along the way removed from the lumber regions. The total area of the country burned over, wooden and open, cannot be less than 1000 1, square miles and is probably very much more than that amount. And we you know, we've heard much much more the ordinary fire in the woods only burns up the brush and the uh, boughs of the trees, leaving the trunk standing uh, with a mere uh, char on the outside. They can still be utilized for lumber, provided they are cut down and thrown into the water before the well-known borer has a chance to attack them. But in the fires of 1871, a large portion of the tree were burned through to the core and fell to the ground. Little better uh, than attenuated sticks of charcoal. It was a destroying fire that literally burned up root and branch. While the fences, uh, hay, buildings, etc. on the farming lands were so completely licked up that not even the ashes were left to indicate the places where they had formerly been stationed or existed. Think about that. I don't know how familiar you all are with, you know, like burning tree stumps to get and try and burn out the roots. I mean, you have to, first of all, you have to set the fire on top of the stump and hope you dry it out enough to burn it through. And usually you can't do it in one session. Usually you have to do it over multiple sessions. This is saying it went right through the tree, through the roots, burned it all out and the tree fell over. That is insanely hot. Okay. And, and so what he says here is this, they're thinking that, you know, there has to be some combustible material that is causing this in the atmosphere. It says, this does not seem to be the case with carbon, the atmospheric portion of which appears to have slowly decreased ever since the car Carboniferous era. At the time, the quantity of carbonic acid gas in the atmosphere was probably 300 times greater than now. Holding in uh, combination one half of the oxygen and forming 15 to 20% of the total weight of the air. Um, the amount of fire carbonic acid has diminished approximately at the rate of about one part in 5,000 each century since then. In this respect, therefore, Northwestern fires have restored the atmospheric conditions of 300 years ago. That's how crazy it is. I mean, they, they just... Uh, yeah. So we look, we're going to keep digging here. Um, I want to take you to, yes. Okay. We, so it goes on to say, we have already pref uh, referred to the probability that these fires were in part in the section, uh, prov providential plans of earth government, right? So they're talking about the earth government. 
While we cannot accept the doctrine that they were sent either as punishment of the people of one section or as a benefit to those of another, we must recognize them as links in the great chain of events, each of which is an effect of the sense cause and a producing cause of subsequent effect. And the same philosophy teaches us that no effect can be greater than its cause or combined causes. Hence, it is absurd to look to the mere upsetting of kerosene lamp in the city or emptying of burning tobacco from a laborer's pipe in the woods as efficient causes of these widespread disasters. They were mere incitements, like the knocking of a chip from the shoulder of a man who is spoiling for a fight. I agree. There's no way that these simultaneous fires just so happened to be kicked off by a cow tipping over a lantern. Just seems too easy. Uh, okay. Now we are going to get into what we call the great conflagration. And there's actually a song that they would sing about this. And uh, it, it's kind of weird. It goes blackened and bleeding, helpless, panting, prone on the charred fragments of the shattered throne lies. She who stood, but yesterday alone queen of the West by enchanter taught to lift the glory of Aladdin's court, then lose the spell that all wander wrought like her own prairies by some chance seed sown like her own prairies in one brief day grown like her own prairies in one fierce night moan she lifts her voice and in the pleading call we hear the city uh, we hear the cry of macedon to paul the cry for help that makes her kin to all but haply was the fingers may she feel the silver cup hid the proffered meal the gifts her kinship and our loves reveal. And that's by Bret Hart. Not the hitman, Bret Hart, but Bret Hart. So what we're looking at here is just a, you know, interesting. Because what I start seeing here is some very interesting words with the way they talk about it. So he says that it was the night of the 8th of October, 1871. And the forenoon following that Chicago was wiped out. It is related and piously believed by most readers of the ancient history that old Rome was once saved by the cackling of a goose. There is at least equal reason to believe that Chicago, which is no less noted as a modern city than Rome, was as the olden capital of the world was destroyed by the kicking of a cow. And I always find that Rome comparison very interesting. They love comparing Chicago to Rome. And, and it had the feel of Rome when they rebuilt it for the World Fair. And we're going to see that over and over, this comparison, this tie to Rome. Is this the handing of the torch from the Roman Empire? Yeah. So we're going to look. Uh, this is just describing... This is just where the fire is, okay? 
So we're going to get into here. So the, the fire has taken, has begun. And what we're going to look at is first, we're just going to look at the description, some of the, the personal experiences of it um, and some of the destruction, because it is just devastating what they were able to do. So it says they marched on until they devoured the thousand or more shanties, houses, planting mills in their path on the West Division. They heeded not the marshal and his corps any more than the bull heeds to fly upon his horn. They heeded not even the broad river, but leaped it easily. After marching along northward up Jefferson Street and river had been destroyed up to the edge of the burned district of Saturday night. So you're seeing right there. They're talking about fire, just jumping and leaping and all of this. It's just unbelievable. Okay, so it says the rookeries, which is a building quickly disposed of. They made a magnificent kindling material and had never extinguished them, distinguished themselves half so well as the habitations of man as they did as fuel for the fiend. And they love calling the fire the fiend. Or another interesting word I heard for fire is apparition, a ghost, ghost fire. I find that really cool. That's a something we'll get into a little bit here too. So beyond them, along LaSalle Street, were a splendid double row of fireproof, quote unquote, mercantile buildings, the superior of which did not exist in the land. So these are top-notch buildings and the fire's coming. Alas, yes, uh, one after another, they went as the column advanced and the columns uh, spreading fearfully, debouching to the left and right, according to the opportunities of the conquest offered themselves. It is not long after one o'clock before the Chamber of Commerce was attacked and fell prey to uh, to the on-advancing force. Soon the courthouse was seized upon, but it did not surrender until nearly three o'clock. When the great bell went down, down and pealed a farewell, dying groan as it went. The 150 prisoners in the basement story were released to save their lives. They evidenced their gratitude by pillaging a jewelry store nearby. Now, listen to the way they describe that, right? They're talking about buildings that are being attacked. It's like it's war. But I thought it was a fire. Commerce was attacked. And they fall prey to the on-advancing force. It's like it's talking about an, a military enemy. About that time, the courthouse was attacked. The telegraph operators in the mercantile insurance building opposite in LaSalle Street saw the pro uh, propriety of falling back upon their ground. The reporter of the Associated Press broke off in the middle of the word his account of the conflagration and betook himself in General Sheridan's carriage to a suburban station. He got the fuck out. From the courthouse... Uh, the course of the main column seemed to tend eastward and Huey's Opera House, the Times Building, Crosby's magnificent Opera House fell rapidly before it. It's just eating up buildings, guys, like Pac-Man going along and just swallowing these things up at a ridiculous rate. Pursuing its way more slowly onward, 
the fiery invader laid waste some buildings in the north uh, east and preparatory to the attack uh, the magnificent wholesale stores at the foot of Randolph Street and the Great Union Depot joined forces with the other branch of main columns. Uh, come on. Oh, what happened? Which had lingered to demolish the Sherman House. And uh, a grand 70 story, a seven story edifice of marble, the Tremont House, and other fine buildings lying between Randolph and Lake Street. Guys, it's destroying marble, stone, brick. But one building was left standing in the division of the city, a large brick structure with iron shutters known as Lynn's Block. This was saved by its isolated location, being on the shore of the river and separated by an exceptionally wide street from seething furnace, which consumed all else in its vicinity. The question was no sooner asked than the post office was seized upon and gutted like the rest, some two millions of treasure being destroyed in its vaults, which proved to have been shamily constructed. It swept down upon the new Bigelow House, a massive, elegant hotel which had never yet been occupied, and demolished that, together with the honorary block, uh, a magnificent new building with massive walls adorned with hundreds of stately colonnades of marble. It was surrounded. It, uh, the fire surrounded the faded structure and ruined it too. It threw a red-hot brick wall upon the building's weaker side, a shower of brands upon the roof, a subterranean fire under the sidewalk and into the basement in an atmosphere of furnace heat all around. It conquered and destroyed the Tribune building at half past seven in the evening. It marched on and laid waste to Booksellers Row, the finest row of bookstores in the world. It fell upon uh, Potter Palmer store of Massachusetts marble. Uh, and guys, it's just laying waste to everything. Everything in its path. So what, ha what were the people forced to do? It says here, a general stampede to the sands of the lake shore or to the prairies of the West was the result. So people are just fleeing and, as we'll see when we get into this, these people are very discombobulated, very disoriented. They don't really, they kind of lose their survivor instinct. Uh, so let's go here. Uh, besides its foothold at the waterworks from which the fire uh, spread rapidly in every direction, it soon made a landing in two of the elevators near the river and organized in advance and consumed everything left by the scores of separate eruptions, which the flames had constantly making in unexpected places. This was the system by which the North Division was wiped out. Blazing brands and scorching heat sent the uh, head to kindle many scattering fires and the general conflagration following up and finishing up. With the limits marked upon the map, nothing was spared. Not any of the elegant uh, residences of the patricians, not even the isolated by acres of pleasure grounds, not even the fireproof historical hall with its thousands of precious relics. 
not even the stone churches of Robert Collier and the Reverend Chamberlain, protected by a park in the front, not even the cemetery to the north, whither many people removed a few of their most necessary effects only to see them consumed before their eyes, not even Lincoln Park, whose scattering oaks were burned to dismal pollards by the all-consuming flames. Nothing but one lone house, the residence of Malu Ogden, which now stands the sole survivor of the scourged district. From any elevated standpoint, the appearance was that of a vast ocean of flame. Think about this, sweeping a mile long billows and breakers over the doomed city. A square of substantial buildings would be submerged by it like child's tiny heap of sand on the beach of a lake. And when the flood receded, there was no more left of the stately block than a tiny sand heap. See now, here is a pile of massive marble. You built it with great pains and thought you had something substantial. Mark now what a bubble it is. <laughs> and the proud dome collapsed and the stately walls and ornate capital. Added to the spectacular elements of the conflagration was the intense and lurid light, the sea of red and black, and the spires and pyramid of flame shooting into the heavens. Was it constant and terrible roar, drowning even the voices of the shrieking multitude? And ever and anon, for a while as often as every half minute, resounded far and wide rapid detonations of explosions or of falling walls. The infirm crust of the earth on which the city stands was shaken by each shock. At three o'clock in the morning, the great gasometer exploded with a thundering sound. About the same hour, the great bell of the courthouse fell. In short, all sights and sounds uh, which terrify the weak and unnerve the strong abounded. But they were mere, only the uh, accompaniment of an orchestra of nature, which was furnishing to the terrible tragedy then being enacted in which the fate of every person of that surging throng was virtually involved. So you're just seeing, guys, it's evaporating everything in its path. We're going to look at this right here. It's a chapter called Night of Terror. And we're going to see, they love talking about fire as the fiend. Or we, we, we've heard it called the apparition. Fully 100,000 were driven from the raging element from their homes into the streets, from the streets into the lake or open prairie, and all of whom were most deeply involved either in regard to life, kindred, or property in the direful event. And we're going to get into the fire fiend. It said, and many were sacrificed, nor was the destroyer any uh, respecter of the persons in the choice of his victims. The rich banker perished in saving his gold or his accounts, as well as the poor laborer for lack of cunning 
or his childing wife for lack of care. Awakened from their slumber, oh, oops, uh, awakened from their slumbers or aroused from their orgies by the approach of the flames, which traveled almost like lightning from house to house and from street to street. The denizens of that inflammable quarter had barely time to escape, half clad for the most part, and rush pell-mell through the streets, whither they knew not. Knew everybody brought something, a few articles of clothing, a pet bird, an animal, perhaps a trunk. Whatever their various impulses prompted them to seize upon the hasty fight. The sidewalks were occupied with men saving, that is, trying to save, and pillaging from the shops along the way. Stores were thrown open, and people were told to help themselves to what they liked. It must all go. Saloons, too, were open, and bottles and taps passed mouth to mouth from the crowd. Right? These people, <laughs> there's guys going in just to get cocked, going just to get drunk, while these fires are raging all around. There's people opening up their stores and saying, take it. Somebody might as well get it, because otherwise it's just going to burn. It's just, it's mayhem. It sounds like just pure and utter chaos. And here we go. This this will describe it to you. The people were mad, despite their and not angry. The people were crazy, despite the police. Indeed, the police were powerless. They crowded upon frail uh, coins of vintage, as fences and high sidewalks propped up rotten piles, which fell beneath their weight and hurled them, bruised and bleeding, into the dust. They stumbled over broken furniture and fell and were trampled underfoot, seized with wild and causeless panics. They surged together backward and forward in the narrow streets, cursing, threatening, imploring, fighting to get free. Liquor flowed like water, for the saloons were broken open and despoiled, and the men on all sides were seen to be frenzied with a drink. Fourth Avenue and Griswold Street were emptied to their denizens into the throng. Ill-omened and obscure birds of the night they were. Villainous, haggard with debauch and pinched with misery. Flitting through the crowd. Colorless, ragged, dirty, unkept were Negroes with the stolid faces and white men who fattened with wages of shame. Gliding through the mass like vultures in search of prey. They smashed windows. Reckless of the severe wounds inflicted on their naked hands and with their bloody fingers rifled impartially till shelf and cellar, fighting viciously for the spoils of their forays. Women hollowed-eyed and brazen-faced with a foul drapery tied over their heads, their dresses half-torn from their skinny bosoms and their feet thrust into trodden-down slippers, moved here and there, stealing, scolding shrilly, and laughing with one another at some uh, particularly splendid gush of flame or a beautiful falling in of a roof. One woman on Adam Street was drawn out of a burning house three times and rushed back wildly into the blazing ruin each time insane for a moment. Everywhere, dust, smoke, flame, heat, thundering of falling walls, crackle of fire, hissing of water, panting of engines, about uh, shouts, uh, braying of trumpets, the roar of the wind, tumult, confusion, 
and uproar. It's just madness. Chaos. From the roof of the tall stable uh, and warehouse to which the writer clambered, the sight was one of unparalleled uh, sublimity and terror. He was above almost a whole fire for the building in the locality were all small wooden structures. The crowds directly under him could not be distinguished because in the curling volumes of the crimson smoke through which an occasional scarlet lift could be seen. And that's a flame. He could feel the heat and the smoke and hear the saddened babble of sounds. And it required little imagination to believe oneself looking over uh, the admentine bulwarks of hell into the bottomless pit. On the left, where two tall buildings were ablaze, flame piled up high over our heads, making a lurid background, against which we were limited in the strong belief the people in the roofs between. Fire was a strong painter and dealt in weird effects, using only black and red and laying them boldly on. We could note the very smallest actions of these figures, a branch man wiping the uh, the sweat from his brow with his cuff and resettling his helmet. A spectator shading his eyes with his hand to peer into the fiery sea. Another gesticulating wildly with his clenched fist brought down on the palm of his hand as he pointed toward some unseen thing. To the right of the faces of the crowd in the street could be seen, but not their bodies. All were white and upturned and every feature was as strongly marked as it had been uh, part of an alabaster mask. Far away, and indeed, for miles around, could be seen, ringed by a circle of red light. The sea of housetops broken by spires and tall chimneys, and the black and angry lake, on which were the few pale white sails. So you're just seeing everything is ablaze. There was the greatest danger, indeed one might say a certainty, that many of these would perish before they could be aroused and got out of the vast buildings for which they were imprisoned. It is now believed, however, that all of the occupants of the hotels, the nine-story Palmer, the seven-story Sherman, with its mile of halls, and the Tremont Tremont Briggs, and the rest, all escaped in safety to the streets, whatever may have been their fate afterwards, no one knows. Others fled in the direction of their impulse or reason suggested. They had reason to thank the flat topography and square open plan for the city for the delivery from being roasted by thousands in the flames. Without straight, broad roads, plenty of bridges across the river and its branches and an open country on three sides of the city, the slaughter must have been terrible. For the streets would have been uh, irredeemably choked with colliding vehicles and the people cornered up by the consumed and consumed by the flames. Each fugitive had brought along some article or other, whatever was the most dearly prized or could be uh, most hastily reached. But by and by, as the rigors of the situation increased, they had abandoned their impediments and strove only to save what was dearest all their lives. 
right? At first, these people are going out with possessions and thinking about, oh, maybe I should save this. Maybe I should save that. But you're quickly going to find out that they see that the only thing they need to worry about is saving their lives. Because if not, those possessions are just going to burn up and they're going to die. So by and by, all the chance to escape out of the southward, of which the braver ones have been now availing themselves hitherto, is cut off. And the shrieking fugitives are now pent up between a fiery uh, and a watery death. This was the situation through nearly 12 hours from Saturday or Sunday midnight to Monday noon, at which time the flames had been subdued at the south and the immediate terrors of the situation removed. When they discovered to their horror that the flames had already been communicated to their own quarter and that the waterworks and other buildings to the rear of them were all ablaze, a terrible panic ensued. There was a sudden screaming and dashing about the half-clad women, gathering up such valuables as they could uh, be suddenly snatched. Then there was a pell-mell rush through the streets, some of the wild faces pushing eagerly in this direction and others quite eagerly in the opposite, and children screaming and shouts resounding and brands falling in showers, a tr uh, trunken running in each other down, a half-drunken, which hold holy desperate ruffians peering into doors and seizing valuables and insulting women and oaths from lips unused to them, as hot as the flames which leaped and crackled nearby, and prayers from manly breasts where they had slumbered since childhood, and in every other sign of turmoil and terror. Survival instincts at an all-time high. It says, At all Monday the fire raged through the ill-fated North Division, but its progress was noted with little interest except by the lockless people whose bodies it seized upon its advance. From every body had given the whole of that quarter as lost, and there was no longer any struggle, even of hope and fear. So it got to a point where these people stopped fearing. They just didn't. They were so, it's almost like shell shock. Right, we would call PTSD now. That's what these people were going through, and it's it's pretty insane. So what we're going to do here is we are going to go through some personal experiences. Now there are, uh, I would say there's probably like sixty or seventy pages of this stuff. We're going to hit on some high levels of it here, and give you some firsthand accounts, but. I'm not going to go crazy here and read every single one. And this is where we're going to leave off for tonight is with a couple of these firsthand accounts here. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start up um, right back here in the next episode and we'll finish up the personal experiences of Chicago and we will get into the Peshtigo fires, which the, the, Reverend Peter Pennon account of this is just as crazy. And, and as we get into these personal experiences, you're going to see more and more that it seems like there's something more to this, you know, 
it wasn't just a forest fire. It, it there had to be more source to it or something that was driving these this blaze because uh you know for it to jump green bay i mean there's even reports of it possibly jumping lake michigan to go from michigan to wisconsin which if you think about that that's just that's on i i just can't see how that's even possible So let's go here. We're going to get into personal experiences. I was at the scene in a few minutes. The fire had already rained a distance about a single square through the frame buildings that covered the ground thickly north of DeCoven Street and east of Jefferson Street. Uh, if those miserable alleys shall be dignified and by being denominated streets, that neighborhood had always been terra incognita, Ooh, terra incognita. Where do we see that? We saw that in, ter in Tartaria, right? We see terra incognita in, in Western United States in the maps back then. Terra incognita to respectable Chicagoans. And during the residence of three years in the city, I had never visited it. The land was thickly studded with one-story frame dwellings, cow stables, pigsties, corn cribs, sheds innumerable, and every wretched building within four feet of its neighbor, and everything of wood, not a brick or single stone in the whole area. Okay, so he's describing a pretty downtrodden area. These people are living right on top of each other, so not four feet between the buildings. Okay. So you were literally on top of each other with the animals. Now, a, yes, this is a recipe for disaster. This is like kindling for a fire. All these houses, all this burnable material in such a small confined area. And that's what we're going to see. But that's expected. What's not expected are these Massive brick and stone buildings being reduced to ash. That's not expected. Iron melting. Temperatures that are hot that are normally not associated with wood fires. Same thing we see a lot in the California wildfires. Right? You see build, uh, uh, cars melted, but trees survived. Hmm. Interesting. Funny how that works. Okay, but still, the firemen kept at work fighting the flames, stupidly and listlessly, for they had worked hard all Saturday night and most of Sunday, and had been uh, enervated by the whiskey, which is always copiously poured on such occasions. These guys are cocked, fighting the fire. Um, let's see, okay. And now the scene of confusion had reached its height. Wagons were rushing through the streets, laden with stocks of goods, books, valuable papers, boxes of money, and everything conceivable. Scores of men were dragging trunks frantically along the sidewalks, knocking down women and children. Fabulous sums of money were offered truckmen for con uh, conveyances. The scene was indescribable. <coughs> Think about that. There's guys just running around with 
valuables. A, they're looking for rides to get out of the city, but then they're, they're just knocking over women and children with these huge running down with huge trunks, whatever. They stood transfixed with a mingled feeling of horror and admiration. And while they often exclaimed at the beauty of the scene, they all devoutly prayed that they might never see such another. The noise of the conflagration was terrific to the roar, which the simple process of combustion always makes magnified here to so grand an extent was added the crashing and falling of buildings, the constant explosion of stores of oil and other material. The noise of the crowd was nothing compared to the chaos of sound. All these things, the great dazzling monumenting light, the crash and roar of the conflagration and the desperate flight of the crowd combined to make a scene of which no intelligent idea can be conveyed in words. That says it all. So guys, you want to take a look? This is the Chamber of Commerce building before. This is the Chamber of Commerce building after. Made of brick and stone. Down to rubble. And that's what we see here. Hot, hot, hot fires. Our capital is wiped out of existence. You can never get what money is stored up without uh, out of those vaults. Okay, so they're talking about the banks. When the I mean banks burn, vaults in the banks burn. That how hot does fire have to be to burn a vault? There isn't one that can stand this furnace heat. Whatever the fire consumes tonight is utterly consumed. All loss is total, for there will not be an insurance company left tomorrow. The trade of the city uh, must go to St. Louis, to Cincinnati, and to New York, and we never can get a hold of it again. We couldn't trust on any business, even if we had customers, for we hadn't got anywhere to oh to transact it <clears throat> yes sir this town has gone up and many well get out at once so you're seeing it the banks are burning they're you know th these people are losing everything and it's also a great opportunity great reset right guys i did not care one person said i did not care whether the city stood or burned i was dead so far as my sensibilities were concerned, half a dozen fellows, strangers were with me on the lumber pile and were as listless as myself, right? These people get to a point where they're just like, they can't take it anymore. They snap, they break. Mentally, physically, and spiritually. So here is a Alexander Freer. He was a New York alderman. Okay. And he, he gives his account. So it says, leaving his charge in the care of some ladies, Mr. Freer proceeded in search of the children. He went to the Sherman house where all was panic. I looked out 
He says, one of the south windows of the house, I shall never forget the terribly magnificent sight I saw. The courthouse park was filled with people who appeared to be huddled together in solid mass, helpless and astounded. The whole air was filled with falling cinders, and it looked like a snowstorm lit by colored fire. The weird effect of the glare and the scintillating light upon the va uh, vast silent concourse was almost frightful. And so he's looking, he goes, uh, while in the corridor of the Sherman house, I encountered my nephew. And he asked me if I wanted to see the fire saying that he had one of George Garrison's horses and only wanted a rubber blanket uh, to throw over him to protect him from the sparks. I told him about Mrs. Freer, but he thought there was no reason to worry. He got a blanket somewhere and we started off uh, in a light wagon for Wabash Avenue, stopping at Wright's and under the opera house to get a drink of coffee, which I needed very much. So see, I mean, these people are exhausted. So uh, he goes, looking back through Washington Street towards the opera house, I saw smoke and flames pouring out of State Street from the very point we had just left. It was intervening space that was filled with whirling embers and beat against the houses and covered the roofs and windowsills. It was like a tornado of fire. To add to the terror, the animals, burnt and infuriated by cinders, darted through the streets regardless of all human obstacles. Wabash was burning as far down as Adams Street. The flames from the houses of the west side reached the diagonal arch quite across the street, and occasionally the wind would lift the great bo uh, body of flame, detach it entirely from the burning buildings, and hurl it with magnificent, uh, with terrific force far ahead. You see that imagery right there. The fire is on the house, and then all of a sudden, or, you know, the say a block of houses, then all of a sudden it is lifted into the air and pushed on. That's some crazy stuff. I mean, think about that. The fire is just moving around, just jumping around and around. It says, we tried to force our way along the avenue, which is already glittered with costly furniture, some of it burning in the streets and under the falling sparks, but it was next to impossible. Twice we were accosted by gentlemen with pocketbooks in their hands and asked to carry away to a place of safety, some valuable property. Okay. So there, there's people just like trying to get out. Everybody's trying to get out. And then you see what's left. I mean, Jackson Street, boom, just destroyed. It says, finally, word was brought that the bridges were burning and all escape was cut off from the north and west. Then ensued a scene which was beyond description. Men shouted the news and added to the panic. Women, half-dressed and many of them with screaming children, fled out of the building. There was a jam in the doorway and struck and clawed uh, each other as if in self-defense. I lost sight of my nephew at this uh, time. Getting out with the crowd, I started and ran around uh, toward the Tremont house. Reaching Dearborn Street, the gust of fire was so strong 
I could hardly keep my feet. He goes, I ran down toward Tremont. Here, the same scene was being enacted with tenfold violence. The elevator had got jammed, and the screams of the women on the upper floors was heart-rendering. I forced my way upstairs, seeing no fire, and looked into all the open rooms, calling aloud the names of Mrs. Freer's daughters. Women were swarming in the parlors. Invalids brought there for safety were lying upon the floor. Others were running distracted about, calling upon their husbands. Men, pale and awestruck and silent, looked on without any means of averting the mischief. All this time, the upper part of the house was on fire. The street was choked with people yelling and moaning with excitement and fright. I looked down upon them from the upper window a moment and saw far upon Dearborn Street, huge flames pouring in from the side streets I had traversed but an hour ago. And it appeared to me that they were impelled with a uh, force of a tremendous blowpipe. So it's like they're being just shot, almost canonized towards the city. It was advancing steadily upon the hotel from two or three points. There was a little, there was very little smoke. It burned too rapidly and there must have been carried away in the wind. The whole was accompanied by a crackling noise of an enormous bundle of dry twigs burning and by the explosions that followed each other in quick succession on all sides. In this chaos were hundreds of children wailing and crying for their parents. One little girl in particular I saw whose golden hair was loose down her back and caught fire. She ran screaming past me and somebody threw a glass of liquor upon her, which flared up and covered her with a blue flame. It was impossible to get through to the bridge and I forced to go back down Randolph Street. I mean, think about that, guys. This girl was on fire and they threw alcohol on her and she just lit up. Oh, I can't imagine at all how horrific that had to have been. I mean, just think about that. But if we go and, and look at some of the, you know, we're going to look at some of this. We'll get into that later. But just look at the utter devastation from these fires people just running through the streets not knowing where to go this picture's always stuck with me because you have all these poor souls trying to get across that bridge and you see the other bridge is full too but yet they're just running from flames look at that I just can't imagine. All right. We're going to do one more um, set in the personal experiences. Yeah, we'll go. We'll do this last one and we will wrap it here and we will pick up next time with more personal experiences. Um, and we're going to get into the beginning of possibly the Pesh to go fires. But along the way, we're going to talk about what caused it, right? That's what we're going to get into, too, some more. Was it comets? Was it a meteor shower? Now, what they say is it could be from the Draconid, the Draco meteor shower, 
which would make things very interesting. They said it's possibly a twin comet that caused this devastation, this conflagration. But we'll see. Let's let's take into this account. This is of uh, Horace White, Esquire, editor of the Tribune, who lost, besides other property, his elegant home on Michigan Ave, containing remarkably select and scholarly library. That's another thing we lost, guys. A lot of information was lost for which he would not have taken 25000 at the time in 1870. A lot of money. Mr. White, on discovering that the fire was one of the unusual magnitude, arose from his bed for the purpose of going to the Tribune office and writing an editorial paragraph, perhaps advising everybody to build an absolutely fireproof edifices like the tri Tribune building. He thus, thus describes the scene which met him as he passed out upon the street. Billows of fire rolling over the business uh, palaces of the city and swallowing up their content. Walls were falling so fast that the quaking of the ground under our feet was scarcely noticed. So continuous was the reverberation. Sober men and women were hurrying through the streets from the burning quarter, some with bundles of clothing on their shoulders, others dragging trunks along the sidewalks by means of strings and ropes fastened to handles. Children trudging by their sides or borne in their arms. Now and then a sick man or woman would be observed, half concealed in a mattress, doubled up and borne by two men. Droves of horses were in the streets, moving under some sort of guidance to place of safety. Vehicles of all descriptions were hurrying to and fro, some laden with trunks and bundles and others seeking similar loads to immediately finding them, the drivers making more money in one hour than they were used to in a week or a month. Everybody in this quarter was hurrying toward the lakeshore. All the streets crossing the part of Michigan Ave, which fronts on the lake uh, on which my own residence stood, were crowded with fugitives hastening toward the blessed water so as you can see here this is a doozy everyone now is heading towards the lake okay so at what time uh the effort was made to reach this magazine and bring powder into service, I have not learned. But I know that Colonel M.C. Stearns made heroic efforts with his great lime wagons to haul the explosive material to the proper point. This is no time to blame anybody. But in truth, there was no directing head on the ground. Everybody was asking everybody else to pull down buildings. There was no hooks, no ropes, no axes. I met General Sheridan in the street in front of the post office two hours before. He had been trying to save the army records, including his own invaluable papers relating to the War of the Rebellion. He told me that they were all lost, and then added that the post office didn't seem to make a good fire. This uh, was when we were supposed the row of fireproof buildings already spoken of 
had stopped the flames in our quarter. Where was General Sheridan now? Everybody asked. Why didn't he do something when everybody else had failed? Presently, a rumor around that uh, Sheridan was handling gunpowder that everybody felt relieved. The reverberations to the powder, whoever was handling it, given us all heart again. Thinking of a people feeling encouraged by the fact that somebody was blowing up houses in the midst of the city and that a shower of bricks was very likely to come down on their heads. The experience of Mr. White and his family is perhaps an average one of the wealthier classes of the South Division. That the same classes in the North Division, represented in the narrative of Mr. Arnold, contained in the next chapter, was much rougher, from which may be deduced an inference as to that 50 times more numerous poor families who had no $20 to give to an exponentially liberal cart man, no sympathizing friends down the avenue to afford them shelter and other comforts, and generally no hours or even a half hour's time in which to calculate upon the means of escape from the devouring element. So I think that's a good place to stop right now. Just going to mark this here. Okay. So we're going to pull the plug right here. But before we go, let's go and we'll just check out a couple more Chicago photos. I just want to show you some of the devastation and what this must have looked like. Look at this. This is just a view from the prairie. It's just a wall of fire and they said it would jump okay and we're going to get into it next episode we're going to talk about fire balloons and what was this description of fire balloons were they tied to a comet who knows we're gonna we're gonna dig a little deeper into it as we look and again look who it is and remember what i said before guys Go listen to Random Randy's Red Thread podcast about some of this stuff. He gets into he does a, a twenty minute or so um, on the fires and the conflagrations and things like that. And notice in this picture, what is it? Jesuit, Jesuit, Jesuits, right? Who are the writers of this realm? I don't know, but these guys in black suits and bowler hats seem to show up and pose. With a lot of pictures. Hmm. Right? You see how they just end up here. I mean, we're looking at pure and utter devastation in these pictures, guys. Again, it's those brick buildings just absolutely devastated. And you'll see some areas that are totally, completely and utterly leveled. Some stone reduced to ash, brick reduced to ash. Uh, and what we'll we'll see when we get into some of this, uh, some of the more experiences here, we're going to start seeing people that, you know, and we saw it here, people running into the fire too. They're starting to lose their mind. And it's just, it's such a sad sad thing 
And again, we'll take a look at some newspaper accounts. We'll take a look at the fire balloons. I definitely want to get to that next episode. And uh, and we may touch on Get Going in the Pestigo Fire with Reverend Peter Pennon's take. Guys, with that said, we are going to stop the show right there. That's where we're going to end it for now. We're going to look at this fire again. Chicago, 1871. Now, what are my takes on it? One, could this have been, you know, now I'm not saying it wasn't just a, a fire, but along with the fire is an opportunity to reseize the land. And this is valuable land, folks. We're talking downtown Chicago, lakefront property, right down on the water. And it was owned by a lot of poor people, a lot of wood huts, and a lot of poor people that we will see as it comes back, as we get deeper into this, they couldn't afford to rebuild. So they were forced to sell their property at a loss. And guess who came in to scoop it up? Those guys we were just talking about in the black hats and suits. All right. Guys, you want more? You want to contribute to the show? I, I greatly appreciate contributions. Um, it keeps the show going. It allows me to uh, expand the show, gather more uh, resources for the show, and uh, put out a better product to you all. So, Great Deception Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Patreon, patreon.com slash Great Deception Podcast. Instagram, you can hit me up there, the Great Deception Podcast at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email. Um, and then we got merch over at Teespring. Go check it down in the link below. Get your t shirts, guys. Honestly, the, the Great Deception logo t shirts are the most comfortable t shirt I've ever had. Form-fitting, soft, great. Uh, the sweatshirt, I'm wearing one right now. I love them. They are, you know, they're they're light, but they're warm. Uh, they fit nice. They run, they do run a little uh I, I don't know, small, short, I would say. You know, this is a large and it's uh, you know, it's right around my waist. XL probably would do better. But uh, guys, it's it's all good. So support the show. Keep it going. Coming up next, part two, Chicago Fire, uh, or the eight fires of 1871. We will get into some more crazy descriptions, get into the comments. Was it possibly weaponry, right? Was this intentional or was this an act of nature? Some people are saying it's intentional, that this was man-made. Oh, that's interesting. And we'll have to get into it next time. With that said, folks, stay strong and question everything. Sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich. 
and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite!